This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. American guidelines for diagnosing hypertension have changed. We'll look at what that means for Canadians. And we'll talk to Turkish Nobel Prize winner and dissident Orhan Pamuk about writing a novel about a museum while building a real one. But first, hear your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Are you an indulgent grandparent? Researchers at the University of Glasgow are sounding the alarm about grandparents who are overfeeding grandkids with snacks and sweets, which set the stage for obesity and illness later in life. The work, based on a review of 56 studies around the world, found that some elders were also smoking in front of their grandchildren and not giving them enough exercise, often because they were afraid of losing track of the kids outdoors. Bottom line, the researchers warn this can contribute to cancer risk down the road. Ageism and neglect in the U.K. are at an all-time high. Authorities estimate at least 1,000 reports of suspected abuse each day, a 6% increase in a year, with more than a third of the abuse occurring in long-term care facilities. Last year, less than half of the 365,000 complaints ended up becoming formal inquiries because authorities were slow to respond. New data from StatsCan shows that older Canadians represent the fastest-growing segments of Internet users across the country. Zoomers aged 65 to 74 increased their Internet usage by 16% between 2013 and 2016. Seniors over 75 saw their Internet use jump by 15%. The birth home of the Dion Quintuplets is being moved to another location in North Bay, Ontario, after a year-long campaign to keep the historic log cabin in the community. The home's fate had been in limbo since it closed to the public two years ago. It now moves from a spot by the highway to a waterfront park. A spokesperson for the two surviving quints, Cecile and Annette, says the women are proud that a key monument of their childhood and of Canadian history is being preserved. Winnipeg is home to Canada's newest super centenarian, now that Hilda Woods has turned 110. Her family and friends threw her a special party at her retirement home, complete with a live band. Hilda enjoys doing word puzzles, which she says help keep her mind sharp, and also credits her close relationships with friends and family for helping her live such a long and healthy life. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. 
Authorities in the United States have lowered the guidelines for diagnosing hypertension. It means that another 30 million Americans will be considered to have high blood pressure, which already afflicts half of U.S. adults. The previous threshold, blood pressure of 140 over 90, has dropped to 130 over 80. Here at home, the guidelines have not been lowered, at least not yet. I reached Dr. Chiming Chow, staff cardiologist at St. Michael's Hospital, to find out what it means for Canadians. With the newer data that was emerging in the last few years, uh, particularly there's a large clinical trial called the SPRINT trial, where patients are treated to blood pressure 120 over 70 and has better outcome. And uh, so all the different medical associations have been advocating for lower threshold to start treating patients. So now it's 130 over 80. It sounds like it's almost arbitrary. If the study had people at 120 over 70, how come they decided to make the guideline 130 over 80? Yeah, so the treatment is actually to 120 over 70. So that means um, they like to actually treat it to be much tighter, but then they start treating patients starting at 130 over 80. So blood pressure is actually a continuous number, and uh, over the last many years, you know, different organizations, uh, both uh, north and south of the border, as well as across the world, is trying to find out the most optimal number. Obviously, if we set too high a number, then uh, the blood pressure will be controlled too loosely. If we set a number that is too tight, then more patients will be diagnosed of being hypertensive, and also more medication will be needed. So constantly, all the medical organizations are trying to find an optimal point. In the United States... This is expected to mean that the number of people who are considered to have hypertension will rise from 72 million to 103 million which is huge. When we look at the data comparing Americans and Canadians, we tend to have slightly less number of people are hypertensive. And in our system, if you have hypertension, you're more likely to be treated and more likely to be controlled. This is borne out by a study that was done by Highland Stroke in Ontario about uh, six or seven years ago. So in, in fact, our country actually has one of the better numbers, if anything, uh, compared with south of the border. But still, uh, part of it could be because of our universal healthcare system, where virtually all our citizens uh, have access to medical care. And uh, in the States, it's not quite the same case. The guidelines haven't been changed here. Do you think that doctors will be jumping the gun, so to speak, and starting to treat those patients with that blood pressure for hypertension even before Hypertension Canada comes out with something? Yep. So Hypertension Canada do actually review their guideline at least once a year. And I think with such major change in the States, they are going to pay particular attention to the changes. And then in the meantime, what, what happened is that as clinicians, we also uh, look at all the data around uh, the world and see where things are going. I, I think, you know, it definitely, uh, in our mind, it speaks to a more tight control on the blood pressure. So it's more likely it will be, as a group, more aggressive, so as to say, to be more cautious on bringing the blood pressure down, uh, definitely below 140 over 90. And then uh, if the best, more ideally, we'll be trying to get closer to uh, 120 over 70 with the upper limits of being 130 over 80. 
it is important uh, for all our patients uh, or our listeners uh, to actually have their blood pressure checked so they know where they stand, so they don't sit on high blood pressure without knowing. And obviously, if they have high blood pressure, then one of the first steps that we would be considering is lifestyle management. So we, we don't like to put people on medication unless we really have to. So some of the first steps are making sure we have a healthy weight, uh, make sure we eat healthily. Uh, some of our patients are, are sodium sensitive, meaning that we should try to cut back on the amount of sodium that one takes in, especially with processed food or prepared dinners or eating out and uh, trying to eat uh, more food that are fresh and healthy and less salt and will be one of the first steps. From your experience as a doctor, out of every 10 patients who come to you with, uh, you know, the beginning of high blood pressure, how many of those are able to change their lifestyle? Yeah, lifestyle has always been one of the more challenging things that we all try to achieve. And based on many studies and our experience, if one can adjust your lifestyle by losing about 10% of your weight and cut back on the amount of sodium that you take, we can actually cut back on the blood pressure by anywhere between 6 to 12 millimeter mercury. So sometimes it actually makes a difference whether you need to be on medication or not. And among all the patients, if we have a very good conversation with them, I think more of the half of them at least will give it a very good try to change their lifestyle so that they can avoid being put on medication. Okay, so more than half will give it a try and not all of them will succeed, right? That's right. Well, it's, a, it's always a challenging thing. There are lots of factors beyond one's determination. For example, uh, the timing available to them and whether they could um, you know, spend more time preparing food and rather than eating out. This means we're going to be uh, prescribing or you're going to be prescribing a lot more drugs ultimately, right? Yeah, one of the challenges, I mean, this is an ongoing debate since the sprint trial, as I described early on in the program, that uh, the cutoff is actually going to be lower and lower. And then obviously more and more patients is going to be classified as being hypertensive. And then at the same time, uh, more patients will need more aggressive medication. Um, but we do see that as long as patient can tolerate the medication and uh, if the blood pressure can be treated uh, to targets or below the targets, uh, the outcome is going to be better. Anything you'd like to leave us with? Well, I think it's important when we actually uh, take care of ourselves, it's important to have our blood pressure checked. When you have your blood pressure checked, uh, make sure that you don't drink coffee two hours before uh, going to see your doctor because that will raise your blood pressure. And when you do do your blood pressure, uh, make sure you're seated in a seat with your back supported, with your feet on the ground, and don't cross your leg because that will increase your blood pressure. And also have your blood pressure taken at least multiple times by an automated machine. We usually recommend at least three times and get rid of the first one and then average the last two. Uh, and then sometimes we may have to take the blood pressure even up to six times, get rid of the first one and average the last five. We also have a 24-hour blood pressure machine that you can use to have a much more accurate estimation of your blood pressure over a longer period of time. So we can identify people who have true hyperpressure versus people who have actually false hypertension, especially when they come to see us in the clinic. <laughs> yeah, it makes people nervous. Dr. Chi-Min Chow, thank you very much for that. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Chiming Chow, attending staff cardiologist at St. Michael's Hospital. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, we talk to Nobel Prize-winning Turkish author Orhan Pamuk about his Museum of Innocence. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. 
It's a novel project that blurs the lines between fiction and reality, art, and everyday life. Orhan Pamuk, the Nobel Prize-winning Turkish writer, collected objects to showcase the events in his novel, The Museum of Innocence, while he was writing the book. Two years later, he opened a physical museum of the same name in a 19th-century building in Istanbul. I sat down with him after a recent lecture at the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto. You told a fascinating story about collecting the objects for your museum at the same time as writing the novel, which is a very different kind of a concept. What was the idea behind it? Museum of Innocence first is a love novel that it explores also what happens to us when we fall in love. My main character, my protagonist, is a middle-class, upper-middle-class boy who falls in love, infatuated with his twice-removed cousin. And just like in Turkish melodramas, she marries someone else, but he visits the family like a sugar uncle or sugar daddy and buys things, collects things, which at the end of the novel he exhibits. So it's first about love, and also about this, that when we are in pain, when we are in drama, we get attached to objects that console us. My character is so much in love with the girl, at least objects that he collects that reminds him of her consoles. Of course, it's a fictional correction, which I really corrected in reality. Yes, but you made a physical space for a fictional collection. What what was the thought behind that? Because most museums are based on objects that were used in reality. Also, perhaps, to show uh, that the slippery, ambiguous nature of all collections, what unites objects are stories, but these stories may be religious stories from big books, or these stories may be national stories about how our nation is made. Uh, I am perhaps saying that all stories, whether they're big stories, national stories, personal stories, we need stories to connect objects, and museums are places that should tell us stories. I argue that these stories should be in smaller scale. Museums also should be smaller. And this is the only way, I argue, that humanity hidden in us can be displayed. Big museums represent nations, big companies, big stories. While I argue that the function, the achievement of museums is we need smaller museums, monosubject, one-subject museums that honor the stories of persons rather than histories of peoples and nations. Even if the people aren't real? Yes. Making things real and imaginary make us pave way for good thinking about some social structures that stop us. Walking around the line, ambiguous line between reality and fiction, Robinson Crusoe, Daniel Defoe wrote it and said, this is a real story. It was not. He said this to sell his novel more. But as he was doing us, his imaginary story taught us more than real stories. In fact, what makes writing of fiction or production of art is that that we make this line between fiction and reality and challenge our own truths. Do people 
come to Istanbul, who've read your books elsewhere, uh, to see the museum? And do you keep track? Do you pay attention to how many people actually yes. visit? Um, yes, we average in the first four years, 35,000 people came. 65% of our visitors are international. But in the last two years, when bombs begin to explode, people were afraid, and now our numbers went down to 22, 25,000. I'm sorry for that. And in fact, when international visitors stop coming to Turkey because they are critical of the government, they are punishing the liberal Turks who are in tourism business, museum business, and in art. Please come to Istanbul. And if you don't come, you are punishing us more than the government. You've been referred to as a dissident. Is that a good way to describe yourself? Yeah, ma'am. It's, it's a way of to describe myself. But I write books and do museums or paint, not for politics. In my youth, all of my friends begin to do political things by nature. I am a solitary man who cares about writing beautiful fiction. I am in politics in many ways, and I am I, I accepted because of my international fame. I am not a person who said, oh, I should be a dissident. What do I do? I don't think that way. I should write a beautiful book. But once you finish the beautiful book, journalists ask you, are you a dissident? Perhaps I am, because I also honestly answer the political questions you ask. That was Turkish Nobel laureate Orhan Pamuk talking about his Museum of Innocence. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, the man who composed a love song about Toronto 45 years ago for City TV will be celebrated with a special exhibit. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your International Arts Datebook. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Bob Komsik. The International Museum of World War II in Boston is honoring the 75th anniversary of the North African campaign with artifacts from the war and screenings of the movie that helped publicize that part of the war. looking at you, kid. The real and real Casablanca is on until February 3rd. After more than a decade in the making, the Louvre Abu Dhabi has finally opened. It's a 12-story gallery designed to bridge civilizations with artworks from Europe, Africa, and Asia. It's been 200 years since Beaton's Christmas annual magazine printed a novel by Arthur Conan Doyle entitled A Study in Scarlet which introduced the world to Detective Sherlock Holmes. In London, you can tour some of Holmes' old haunts, but be advised, 221B Baker Street does not exist. However, between numbers 237 and 241, you will find the Sherlock Holmes Museum. And the Hermitage Amsterdam is hosting an exhibition devoted to 17th century Dutch paintings. There are 63 on display by 50 different artists in a display that explores the Russian Tsar's love of Dutch masters, including a work by Rembrandt, which was acquired by Peter the Great. That's the International Arts Datebook. I'm Bob Komsik. 
This week, we launch a special exhibit called Moses and Music from City to Zoomer at our very own MZTV Museum of Television. It is curated by Ed Conroy and Emily Berg, and one of the highlights will be the premiere screening of the new short doc, People City, Toronto's Lost Anthem. It looks back at the iconic city TV theme that was composed by local songwriter Tommy Ambrose and came to represent our entire city. Right now, we'll hear the original recording played every day for years when city TV signed on and off the air, back when stations used to do that. Here is People City. That was Tommy Ambrose with People's City. A documentary of the same name will highlight the exhibit, Moses and Music, from City to Zoomer. It takes place at the MZTV Museum of Television here at the Zoomerplex. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. Produced by Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.